In the age of television, Nixon understood just how much image mattered. He knew that Americans evaluate a candidate's personality before their policy. Political historian David Greenberg says that while Nixon worked tirelessly to craft his image, it was often received in vastly different ways. Nixon was really one of the first conservative politicians on a national scale to try to move the Republican Party away from its image as the party of bankers and businessmen and give it more of a cast of the party of the working man, of the everyday Joe. In his first campaign, he had the slogan, Richard Nixon is one of us. Nixon made an issue of abortion, um, made an issue of pornography, made an issue of drug use, particularly Vietnam War protesters was a biggie. All of these issues, he was trying to pit the average American who he wanted in the Republican column against the liberal elite, the university professors like you and me, the media, and all of those people who were defined as alien and somehow uh, vaguely or not so vaguely un-American. Is it fair to say that Nixon's own personal story gave him more street cred with that silent majority than, let's say, a Donald Trump? Well, absolutely. You know, in our age, biography has been an important element in shaping the political image of all kinds of candidates. Now, people work to get around that and modify it or change it. But Nixon came from, you know, a fairly hard scrabble existence. He felt he kind of had to work his way up and fight for everything. He contrasted himself with John F. Kennedy, who he saw as a child of privilege, to whom everything came easily and to whom everything was handed. And that sense of Nixon as someone who drove, who worked hard, who pushed, who fought hard, sometimes dirty, was one that he proudly embraced. And in the 60s and the early 70s, he was proud to be a square as opposed to a hippie. You know, uh-huh. he, he was was happy to sort of embrace that image. So when did Nixon, the victim, emerge? Because his early political career is remarkably successfully skyrockets from being a congressperson to a U.S. senator, vice president, all when he's relatively young. Nixon really wallows in the victim image when the Watergate scandal breaks and he's under siege. But you can see elements of the self-pitying quality, the sense that he has been victimized by powerful forces, the establishment, the liberals, and so on, early in his career, as early as 1952, when he's been chosen as Eisenhower's running mate and it emerges that he's kept a slush fund for to pay for certain expenses, and he goes on television to give what's now called the Checker speech, this famous speech at the time to the largest audience that had ever seen any speech because it was televised. Um, and in, in this very uh, sort of mawkish, self-pitying tone, um, he talks about, and again, here you see maybe the, the populist merging with the victim. He talks about, uh, you know, how he struggled, how his wife, Pat, didn't have a fur coat. I should say this, that Pat doesn't have a mink coat, but she does have a respectable Republican cloth coat. 
And I always tell her that she'd look good in anything. One other thing I probably should tell you, because if I don't, they'll probably be saying this about me too. We did get something, a gift, after the election. A man down in Texas heard Pat in the radio mention the fact that our two youngsters would like to have a dog. And believe it or not, the day before we left on this campaign trip, we got a message from the Union Station in Baltimore saying they had a package for us. We went down to get it. You know what it was? It was a little cocker spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Checkers. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. That so-called Checkers speech, who did that work with and who did it not work with? What's remarkable about the Checkers speech, Brian, is we remember this as almost a comic moment in political history is this great failure. I mean, we look back on it and it's made fun of. In the 1970s, left-wing filmmaker Emil D'Antonio does a movie about Nixon and sort of shows the Checker speech, you know, without commentary for laughs that he can mm. count on from, you know, his Harvard Square audience. <laughs> Those, those were hip squares in Harvard Square. Right, exactly. The hip square of Harvard Square. Yeah, at, at, in 52, it was a big hit with most of the country. You know, this saved his place as Eisenhower's vice presidential running mate. And I looked through the archives of the letters that came in to Nixon and to the Republican National Committee. What's most remarkable is the words that people used were words like authentic and sincere and mm. genuine, the exact opposite of the words that were being used the next day by liberal columnists like Max Lerner and Walter Lippmann and others. So when it came to image making, how much time did Nixon self-consciously devote to it and how good was he at it? Nixon obviously was obsessed with his image. I mean, we see this in all reports from his aides, you know, it's in all the memoirs, and we hear it on the tapes. You know, we have accounts of Nixon saying, you know, he needs to hire a TV advisor to tell him whether to hold the telephone with his left hand or the right hand. <laughs> I mean, the, the level of detail. And of course, at the same time, he's always protesting that he never gives it any thought. You right. know, a classic case of protesting too much. Um, a lot of his aides come from the worlds of advertising, uh, public relations, people like William Sapphire, who became a speechwriter, or H.R. Haldeman, his chief of staff. You know, and, and these people had been in politics before. Other presidents and politicians had used advertising men before, but they hadn't quite populated their staffs with them to the extent that Nixon had. So it really was uh, an obsession. Now, as to whether he was good or bad, it's tricky. Uh, tricky dick. Things are tricky. <laughs> um, like the Checker speech, sometimes this kind of image making and the concern with television proves very effective. Other times, say the 1960 debates with Kennedy, by this point, eight years after Checkers, 
audiences have gotten somewhat wiser to television and they're no longer just impressed with a plain, straightforward presentation. And Kennedy's sort of more relaxed, uh, cool style uh, in Marshall McLuhan's terms is actually the more effective. The favorite story I have about Nixon's attempts at image making and how they often backfired comes from his presidency when, you know, he was always obsessed with Kennedy and always trying to look Kennedy-esque. And he envied the way that Kennedy, you know, was photographed casually walking along the beach. Coat slung over his shoulder if he had a coat at all. Exactly. So Nixon, who used a vacation out at San Clemente in Southern California, decides he's going to do a sea shot, as it's called. And he summons <laughs> the White House reporters and cameramen to a bluff in San Clemente. And they're waiting there for the photo op. And out comes Nixon walking along the beach, but in trousers and wingtips, you know. <laughs> and it's classic Nixon, because instead of looking Kennedy-esque, he looks like someone trying to seem Kennedy-esque. Right, right. My favorite misfire, and this might have been a nasty photographer, uh, much more than Nixon, is this iconic photograph of Nixon shaking hands with the crowd. He's walking in some kind of parade, maybe an inaugural one. Uh, and he's shaking hands, he's wading into the people, but he's looking at his watch while he's shaking hands. It really doesn't, really doesn't give the sense of a warm and fuzzy kind of guy. Yeah, he, he was always too self-conscious uh, about the impression he was casting, and it kind of got in the way of his relaxing and being himself. Uh, you know, all of his aides described how he was just terrible at small talk, yeah. how he would, every time he met them at a White House reception, make the same joke or the same <laughs> remark about their tie. Uh, and it was really, for someone who goes into politics, which right. is this extrovert's business, he was an introvert who succeeded through kind of internal struggle, dogged hard work, but not through a natural bonhomie or backslapping or any of that. And what would you say Nixon's legacy is for politicians today, especially in the area of image shaping? It was, in a way, through Nixon and his really half century in public life that we became aware of the extent to which politics is this contest of created images that are being you know put before us a battle of image making a battle of spin media coverage fundamentally changes say between 68 when nixon comes in and 88 when reagan goes never again is it possible to write a sort of straightforward news lead about a candidate or a president's uh rally it's always done with comments on strategy, comments, you know, cynical quips by the reporter, you know, in an effort to court favor with this group, so-and-so right. today <laughs> positioned himself. That kind of language becomes pervasive in our, poli in our political coverage in a way that simply wasn't the case pre-Nixon. Today, you know, it's almost hard to find the reporting amid the commentary and everybody's a strategist and an analyst. And 
I think that is, you know, if not directly attributable to Nixon as a person, attributable to the American experience with him. He's coming of age at the same time as political consultants, as the rise of television. And collectively, this experience, I think, does change how we see politics and how we talk about politics. David Greenberg is a professor of history and journalism and media studies at Rutgers University. He's the author of Nixon's Shadow, The History of an Image. 